Hello and welcome to Office Hours on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Sibel Kaler and today we have Rianne Campbell as our guest, a PhD student in, neuro in neurology from UC Irvine. Um, Rianne, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> of course. Um, as a reminder, last week we had our first episode by our co-host, Ingrid Allen. Her and myself will be alternating episodes from now on. Um, so, uh, Rianne, how would you briefly uh, describe your research? Yeah, so um, I study um, drug addiction, um, and I tried to understand how drugs of abuse like cocaine cause these long-lasting changes in the brain in a way that rewires basically the circuitry in the brain to cause them cause it so it kind of um, influences behaviors um, you may, you know can make an individual crave and take drugs and I look at um, in a specific brain region the kind of molecular players that are responsible for kind of initiating uh, important kind of components of like cascades that kind of drive these changes in the brain that help rewire and re and kind of um, guide these kind of behaviors. Wow. Uh, what initially made you interested in this topic? Um, so I guess it was really just um, doing, uh, being like a research assistant in my undergrad lab. Um, so I went to undergrad at UC Santa Barbara um, and I was, I switched my major to biopsychology and um, was just looking for somewhere to kind of help out as a lab assistant. And I really became interested in just how you can answer so many questions um, as a scientist and especially, um, you know, knowing how, how big of an impact drug addiction is to the country, to the world. Um, I saw it as, you know, something really important and, you know, the value in looking at drug addiction is having that kind of model, right? Like you need drugs of abuse to actually become an addict. And so we really have these really sophisticated ways of trying to create models of how um, one takes drugs and what, how you crave and seek drugs. And I always found that so interesting of how we create these really complex um, models with behavior for studying drug addiction. And then we also get to do um, really complicated, you know, molecular experiments to look at what's going on in the brain on top of that. So it seemed like a really cool way to um, answer a lot of different cool questions and like create this kind of ultimate puzzle essentially. Yeah, it's such an important issue. Uh, what are some of the ways you've discovered about how um, cocaine and other substances change the brain? Yeah. Um, so the lab that I'm in is uh, Dr. Marcelo Wood's lab in uh, the Department of Neurobiology and Behavior. Um, and so he studies and his lab is really interested in uh, epigenetics, um, and which I can kind of get into if you'd like me to explain epigenetics is. Um, okay, cool. So right, you have your DNA. Uh, you're familiar with the central dogma, right? DNA becomes RNA. Um, which then ultimately becomes proteins. Um, and so what I look at, um, what Marcelo Wood, Dr. Marcelo Wood's uh, lab looks at, are really the mechanisms that um, kind of help DNA become RNA. Um, because 
DNA is actually right, it's actually six feet long. And so it's this really uh, huge amount of information that gets compacted into the cell. Um, and what's really cool is um, it wraps like a kind of string around ball um, around these proteins. And in order for that string to actually get read, a bunch of different kind of modifications need to get made to it so it can unravel and be read more easily, um, or it can get condensed from a certain modification. Um, and so we look at, you know, what's causing things to get uh, loosened or condensed and how cocaine does that. Um, and it's really interesting because these kind of modifications can be long lasting. Um, so, you know, as a field, we kind of look at how drugs of abuse cause these modifications. And if, you know, when you take, if one would take cocaine um, early on, how long lasting those modifications persist in the brain. Um, and it's super interesting of how, you know, a modification can change how one gene it gets expressed and how that gene can then ultimately like change how a cell and then a brain region um, can really be kind of activated. Um, and so those are the kind of mechanisms that we look at. Um, I look at um, how a kind of modification in a particular type of cell um, really drives changes in behavior and makes um, individuals more likely to take or want cocaine. And um, it's really interesting because we can see in different types of cells, um, these modifications can do different things and they can either drive one to take drugs or they cannot. And if it's affected in a different cell type. So it's really cool to kind of think about, um, you know, how cocaine is doing this in a bunch of different ways in a bunch of different cells to drive this really complicated behavior. Um, so complicated and messy, but also uh, simple of like, I'm looking at one thing in one cell and seeing how it changes the behavior and, or one type of cell. And um, we're seeing, you know, that it seems to be important in driving these aspects of uh, drug related memories. Um, and we're trying to figure out, you know, how complex that is or how long lasting that is. Right. Um, how is the epigenome involved in learning and memory? Right. Um, so, uh, right. Um, in order for, again, to the central dogma, right, DNA gets made into RNA and ultimately protein. And these proteins um, in cells in the brain are important in creating, um, like in order for that cell to function. And um, so if, when you're learning something or if you're taking a drug that then enhances kind of the experience that you're in, that you are learning that information about in that kind of situation, um, right? Genes are getting expressed and those proteins then become made to <laughs> become translated. Um, and that these are kind of important pieces that help rewire the cells um, and that's kind of how memories get stored or it's an important process in how memories get stored is these um, the expression of these genes that become proteins and help kind of strengthen communications between cells um, and kind of rewire certain cells to make these memories be made and stored. Wow 
How do you test for these structural changes caused by um, cocaine? Yeah, um, so we, um, we do a bunch of different things. Um, we can look and see in, um, we can look and see whether or not cocaine changes, you know, the expression of a protein or a gene. Um, we can also look and see um, whether or not, um, you know, certain cells respond differently when uh, they, when it, um, when they get cocaine, um, and there's a bunch of different ways you kind of look, can look at how cells are responding, how they communicate differently, if um, the physical structure of the cells changed, um, because in neurons, there's all these kind of um, like little uh, spines and little uh, structures that come out and help be able to communicate across different cells. And so we can look at and see if those get bigger or if there's more of those kind of uh, like branches essentially um, if cocaine alters how those cells are structured and that gives us a hint of basically like oh this is maybe driving an important important memory process or uh, important for a certain kind of behavior what kind of um ways does it affect people's behavior specifically yeah um so uh, we do a lot of modeling behavior. Um, it's really hard, you know, addiction's super complex, like a, you know, a lot of other diseases. Uh, um, but um, so you can do a lot of things of isolating certain components that make up drug addiction. Um, you know, there's, um, there's uh, memories that are associated to a drug that makes individuals, you know, think about cocaine and makes them want to then take cocaine. So we can um, kind of, creates um, create models of giving an individual cocaine and then seeing whether or not um, they're able to form that kind of memory and if we can inhibit an important activity in the brain can we then change the ability of that memory to be formed um, and we can also do um, these kind of like measuring them being able to actually want to take cocaine um, so I do models, right? I use animal models, so not humans. Uh, so, um, so this is all kind of using animal models. Um, but we can have these animals learn to press a lever that when they press a lever in a box, um, they know that that means they're going to get cocaine. And so we can see how much they actually want to press that lever. And that means, you know, how much they're trying to get cocaine. And so then we can do a manipulation and see doesn't actually change them taking it. Are they taking it more or are they taking it less? Um, and we can kind of use that uh, kind of model and um, add like a cue, like a light or um, create kind of stressors for them and see, um, or punishments and see, does that change, um, you know, them to take, are they more or less likely to take cocaine? And those are the kind of aspects that are really important in trying to model drug addiction because, um, right, drug addiction is uh, drug use despite negative consequences. Um, and so it's really important that you try to address, you know, the initial stages of drug taking, uh, those, you know, withdrawal components of drug taking, um, and then also all of these different stressors or um, ignoring consequences too and still taking uh, drugs. So there's so many different ways that you can approach 
trying to study this kind of complex uh, disease. Yeah. Um, I've read that you use uh, mice in your, um, in your research. What, what makes these animals um, the best test subjects and are there unique challenges in using them? Right, yes. Um, so um, mice are very smart. Um, so in that sense where they can perform some of these uh, tasks, it's really useful to use this, use this kind of animal model. Um, they also breed really quickly and we can, um, we have the ability to actually manipulate their genome uh, really easily in comparison to um, other kinds of um, animals. Um, so we can really study the function of a certain gene or manipulate a certain gene easily uh, in this kind of um, model and study its importance in all these different kinds of diseases, not just drug addiction. Um, and because, um, and they also share a lot of uh, similar structures in the brain. Um, and because of that, it makes it a very good model for studying the brain and brain diseases. Um, so for those reasons, um, they're crucial to our research. And um, I, uh, I know like a lot of people who actually, when they defend, they get like a tattoo or something related to their PhD. And I know I want like a handful of people who get tattoos of like a mouse or a rat and like kind of in commemoration of like, these important animals that help them and help us understand diseases and the brain and help us do our important research. <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Um, what does a typical day in the lab look like for you? Yeah, um, it can vary, which makes it nice. It's, um, there's a lot of different kinds of experiments you can do. Um, so I really like that. I'm like missing thinking about it. Um, but so um, I can, go in and do a lot of like pipetting to do kind of like bench work molecular experiments to say like, okay, did arm manipulation or did cocaine change gene expression in the brain? Um, and so you have to load up your protein samples and get a certain kind of reagent to test that and to measure that. Um, or I can go say, okay, did my manipulation of the brain in those animals actually change the behavior? Let's go like see if how those animals are doing and let's see if they remember or if they're craving drugs more. Um, so then we can run a behavior task where then I'm, you know, interacting with mice, holding the mice, giving them, um, you know, having them undergo their important tests. Um, and I also get to train my undergrads and interact with them, which I love. Um, it's always really nice to be able to share um, my passion for science to anybody I can. And it's really rewarding to see them learning and them appreciating it. Um, reading papers, reading scientific papers or writing, a lot of writing um, to try to, you know, communicate those findings and not only uh, oral presentations, but also uh, to the field through publications um, and trying to stay on top of, you know, what everyone else is publishing to see how this relates to my questions um, and uh, stuff like that. So a lot of, most of it is a lot of pipetting and handling mice with headphones, to be honest, <laughs> with breaks of then talking to my lab members or my undergrads about whatever science we're doing and or whatever podcast we're listening to or Netflix we're binging uh, in between pipettes, basically. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, has the current pandemic we're in, um, how has that affected the lab? 
Yeah. Um, so we are shut down. We've been shut down for um, a little over three weeks. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Um, it's been a while. <laughs> um, so I've luckily been able to um, analyze some images where um, we can detect certain proteins. Um, uh, and I'm basically kind of counting to see how many there are and how much cocaine has maybe changed the expression of these proteins by looking at these images of um, brain tissue. Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing in the meantime um, and writing up some of my results because um, you can't go in. <laughs> um, but yeah, other than that, um, that's kind of been going on. I'm hoping we'll be able to go back soon, but it's very important that we maintain our shelter in place. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> yeah, I hope that it clears up and the lab can get running soon. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, what do you think makes addiction such a dangerous problem? Um, so many reasons, um, right? Um, I mean, in the United States alone, I think the financial costs are, are like in the hundreds of billions, basically, of how addiction affects uh, the U.S. Um, and that's in terms of like unemployment uh, or crime, um, you know, and it's really unfortunate that addiction doesn't only affect the individual, it often affects the family members um, or other kinds of relationships um, of those individuals. Um, and there's so much, um, you know, there's so many comorbidities that come along with addiction. Um, you know, a lot of things can be masked by trying to, by abusing drugs, and that's unfortunately often what happens with people. And so, you know, helping address one issue can help, you know, uncover and help the other issue. And um, uh, so many reasons. <laughs> um, but yeah, and um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, I'm trying to boil it down to a few, but, you know, it's, it's important and it affects a lot of people. Um, there's, I think it's like 40 to 60% of people um, who um, usually who like relapse every year um, who were at one point, you know, um, sober or in recovery. And it's because of that kind of statistic and, you know, knowing that how it affects individuals is why we need to create better therapeutics for people. Um, I think like one of the most promising ones is, um, I can never say it, it's like Varenseline. Uh, it's like for nicotine um, and it's like, you have to take it for I think like three months and even then it's only like 60% effective. And um, there are so many drugs with a lot of side effects, unfortunately. So that makes you know people not want to take it and there's so many stressors that make people vulnerable to wanting to just go back to taking a drug of abuse um so i think it's really important that we try to find uh, ways to help people who are struggling with this um yeah <laughs> yeah it's such important work you're doing in your <laughs> subjects um do you find that addiction can be passed down um through generations yeah, um, I, I mean, so there's definitely genetic components to it. Um, I think I've heard people say that it's like 50% genetic and 50% environmental. Um, and um, along with that, there's like 
um, people look at kind of transgenerational effects um, on the epigenome also. And um, there are some studies showing, um, and it's all in animal models um, and from work in Yasmin Hurd's lab, looking at how, um, I think it's, it's either heroin or it's THC, um, but taking, um, it's basically if like grandparent mice take I want to say it's THC, uh, have THC, then like two, I think two generations down. So those grandchildren will have kind of deficits in and uh, different responses to drugs of abuse than people whose grandparents don't. Um, so those kind of things make it pretty crazy to think about. I'm like, oh God, I have to be so careful. I don't want to do anything bad to my grandchildren. <laughs> um, but you know, it's interesting to think about. Um, and we're kind of finding out more and more um, how things are getting passed down, what uh, components are really important that we need to look at uh, to kind of address these kinds of things. Wow, that's really surprising. You also study binge alcohol intake in mice. What are some of the differences between how alcohol and cocaine affects their brain? And have you studied any other substances? Yeah, um, so that was um, work in my undergrad lab um, uh, in Dr. Karen Zulinski's lab at UC Santa Barbara, um, where we were looking at um, how this one kind of particular protein that's important in uh, helping kind of um, a type of communication called uh, glutamatergic uh, transmission, um, a type of kind of um, neurotransmitter system, um, how one kind of protein in particular kind of helps regulate uh, aversion to alcohol. And um, we showed that if that, that from kind of chronic use of alcohol, that that expression of that protein gets altered in a particular brain region that's important for kind of, uh, we normally kind of think of it as important for regulating stress. Um, but it seems that alcohol can actually affect the expression of this protein um, in this kind of stress brain region and um, kind of change the aversive responses of alcohol. Um, so it makes them more likely to um, not experience those kind of a, aversive effects of alcohol or those aversive responses to alcohol and then make the animals more likely to then consume the alcohol. Um, so it's kind of interesting, again, that, you know, there's rewarding effects and aversive properties and how these all kind of relate um, to make one likely to consume a drug. Um, in terms of differences um, or similarities <laughs> um, between alcohol and um, uh, cocaine, I mean, alcohol affects a lot of different uh, neurotransmitter systems um, and versus when we kind of think about with cocaine, um, in general, in kind of a simplistic way, we we really know it has its um, a lot of importance is on how it affects dopamine, um, and then downstream from kind of chronic use, how it affects the glutamatergic system too. Um, but alcohol kind of has right. It's um, also kind of like the sedative versus cocaine is uh, the stimulant. So from these kinds of things, they do a lot of different things behaviorally um, because of how they're affecting the brain differently too. Um, and I guess another thing uh, I've looked at a lot of, uh, different drugs of abuse in my undergrad labs. We looked at methamphetamine, um, and how it affects the glutamatergic system, that kind of excitatory neurotransmitter that's really important in the brain. Um, and, um, 
in my first year in graduate school at UC Irvine. Uh, I worked, um, I did a rotation with Dr. Steve Mahler's lab um, when he was looking at um, kind of the synthetic uh, cannabinoid and seeing how adolescent exposure of this uh, cannab uh, synthetic cannabinoid um, affects then adult behaviors. And he found, and we found, uh, but I was doing small part of a project that um, um, his lab was doing that I was able to help out with, um, how it really affects um, uh, palatable food intake um, in these animals. So it kind of disrupts a lot of reward related, natural reward seeking behaviors. Um, and then I've also, in my first year, worked in Dr. Christy Fowler's lab at UC Irvine as well, and she studies nicotine addiction, um, and she looks at um, how these circuits in the brain um, are regulating uh, different aspects of nicotine consumption. Um, and yeah, so a lot of different drugs of abuse. Um, I don't necessarily have a favorite that I study. I think they're all really interesting and very different. Um, so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> There's so much, they do so many different things and then they do some things in common. And so you have to figure out what's important. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you mentioned relapses earlier. What happens in the brain that causes relapses? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, we don't entirely know, right? Um, there's uh, a lot, there's certain brain regions in particular, and there's different kinds of relapses also, um, stress-induced relapse, um, um, cue-induced relapse. So seeing, um, what do I, I use like, not kind of drug of abuse related, but like seeing something like a Starbucks coffee mug or something like that's a cue that makes you say, oh, shoot, I am really craving that coffee. I wish I didn't see that. Um, so we look at that kind of thing where for someone who's struggling with um, uh, addiction, it would be like, um, like a needle or um, a bar sign or something like that. So that kind of relapse. Um, and also then there's drug induced relapse so let's say you say like oh i'm just gonna have that one beer and then it turns into you know a whole bottle of tequila later or something like that um so from that yeah we kind of tease apart what are the important brain regions in those different aspects of relapse um and um there's i guess a lot of different things um but yeah we look in my lab we kind of more look at how cues kind of promote relapse um, and we're kind of looking at um, how these different brain regions um, there's this one brain region called the medial habemula um, we're seeing that it has a role in regulating um, cocaine induced uh, relapse that kind of drug primed uh, relapse um, which is kind of this like new brain region that no one really thought was important for coke for cocaine induced relapse um, everyone kind of studying it with only nicotine addiction, really. Um, and so we're finding that, no, it's, it's important for cocaine, too. And it actually seems to be really specific to this type of relapse. So we need to study what it's actually doing to promote this kind of process. And that um, was work by um, a graduate student who graduated a couple of years ago, um, Alberto Lopez, who was doing that in our lab, that research that now a postdoc uh, uh, Jessica Childs is actually looking and following up now and seeing 
what is this brain region doing and how is it involved in cocaine related relapse? Wow. Uh, what implications does your research have for fighting addiction in humans? Yeah. Um, so um, we look at kind of this right basic science, we use these models, try to map it on to this particular type of um, uh, component of addiction, um, drug-related memories uh, and drug-related relapse. Um, and we're ultimately trying to figure out, you know, what are these important molecular players? Um, what are they doing um, with the hopes that way down the line, once we kind of figure out what's important and then what they're doing, if we can then um, kind of contribute that kind of information to the field that, um, you know, someone will think it's also important and create a uh, therapeutic, like a pharmacological inhibitor or something like that. Uh, um, to try to, you know, prevent that kind of important activity from occurring if that's an important process in driving a drug addiction related process. Um, so we're kind of interested in looking at, you know, just what the players are and what they're doing and hoping down the line that that will really contribute to something and an important information for a therapeutic to be made. Right. Uh, well, Rianne, thank you so much for being on the show today. That was really informative and interesting. Oh, good. I'm glad. But thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's been fun talking to you. Of course. Uh, again, listeners, that was Rianne Campbell, a, a PhD student in neurology at UC Irvine. I'm Sabelle Kaler, and this is Office Hours on KUCI. I hope you're all doing okay out there, staying healthy, and having a great day. Um, so have a great morning, and be kind to each other out there. <laughs>